Well, it's good to see you today. I want to encourage you to turn. We're continuing in our series in 2 Timothy. We're in chapter 2 today. I encourage you to turn there with us. We're going to be looking at the first 13 verses in the chapter. This is Paul's farewell address to one of his beloved. He has discipled, he has mentored this young Timothy, has sent him out to pastor the church there in Ephesus. And um, <clears throat> this is one of three of what we call pastoral epistles, uh, letters that Paul wrote to young pastors, First and Second Timothy and then Titus. And this is Paul's very probably last letter. And so he's going to be more intimate, more open, more caring, more encouraging, challenging, because he knows time is limited. So there in 2 Timothy chapter 2, let's look at verse 1. We're going to read the, this text and then we'll come back and look at it in pieces. It says, You then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Share in suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. The athlete is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. It is the hardworking farmer who ought to have the first share of the crops. Think over what I say, for the Lord will give you understanding in everything. Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David, as preached in my gospel, for which I am suffering, bound with chains as a criminal. But the word of God is not bound. Therefore I endure everything for the sake of the elect that they also may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. The saying is trustworthy, for if we have died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he also will deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. We're going to look at this passage this morning in four sections. The first one is going to be verses 1 and 2 and talk about generations of discipleship. The second one will be verses 3 through 7 and talk about analogies of faithfulness. Then verses 8 through 10 on the simplicity of the message. And finally, verses 11 through 13, the song he cannot contain. Let's look there in verses 1 and 2 at generations of discipleship. It says, you then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. You know, there are a lot of generations of Christians in that verse. And it's not just the ones that we see from Timothy to faithful men to teach others. That's three. There are other generations because we start, we can start with Paul, who when he got saved over in Acts chapter 9, there were not a lot of people who were really excited about that. He started trying to come to church, and they thought he was trying to come to church so that they could, he could get inside information on them, you know, and, and bring them up on charges. It says in Acts 9, 26, they were afraid of him, for they did not believe that he was a disciple. But there was one who saw something in Paul, who at that time was still called Saul, saw something in him that others might not have seen and apparently did not, and his name was Barnabas. Barnabas saw in Saul something worth investing his life in, and he stood up for him in 927. He took him to the apostles and said, this guy's gotten saved. He, the, the Lord appeared to him on the road to Damascus. He's been preaching in the, in the synagogues. He has become a Christian. And the validation of Barnabas on the life, the conversion of Saul, gave this new convert 
credibility with the leaders of the church. And they facilitated him preaching in the synagogues. In 928 it says, So he went in and out among them at Jerusalem, preaching boldly in the name of the Lord. Paul got saved and immediately started preaching. And that is not necessarily the standard operating procedure. We need to be extremely careful with folks who are recent converts. How many times have you seen someone who has just recently declared Christ and we put them on the front page of the Christian papers and at the front of the stage at the Christian conferences and just a few weeks, months, whatever later, they say, ah, I don't know about that after all. It's a dangerous thing to give them too much prominence too fast. And we can look at this and say, well, Paul started preaching immediately, uh, so it's safe. That's not solid reasoning. Paul is the same one who, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit in 1 Timothy 3, said, when you're talking about an elder in the church, he must not be a recent convert. Why? Because he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. I wonder why Paul said that. I wonder if he experienced some of that. Oh, I'm really all that after all. And we can look at it and say, yeah, but he did it and he survived. You know, there are a lot of stupid things I've done over the years and survived, right? Amen? How about you? Just because I survived them doesn't mean I'm going to tell my kids about them, right? They come up with their own enough without me adding my stupidity on top of that. We just kind of keep those on the DL, right? Paul had people around him who protected him, who he listened to, and when they said, okay, we need, we, need you to, we need you to sit down for a while, he did what they told him to do. Over in Acts chapter 9, verse 29, it says he, he argued, he, he reasoned with the Greeks, the Hellenists, but they were seeking to kill him, and when the brothers learned this, they brought him down to Caesarea and they sent him off to Tarsus. They sent him to the far side of the empire and for the next however many years, upwards of 17 possibly, they left him on the backside of nowhere so he could marinate in what God had done in his life. I wonder if they knew that he needed time to settle into his faith. See, Over in Isaiah 55 it says that that water soaks into the ground and it takes time for water to soak into the ground. And so they sent him away so that that word could seep in, soak in, and have the effect of transformation of who he was and to who Christ wanted him to be. And after upwards of 17 years, God did something in the Greeks over in chapter 11, Acts chapter 11. And when the apostles heard about it, they sent Barnabas to check it out up in Antioch. And when, it, when he got there, he realized the Gentiles have received Jesus. What the Jews thought would never happen, the Gentiles have received Jesus. And he remembered, you know, I met this guy years ago. I wonder what he's doing now. And so he got online and he went looking for Saul of Tarsus. Now, he had a smartphone unlike Pastor Kevin who still has a flip phone, see? So he could just pull it out and plug it in and he found him in Tarsus. Can you imagine going halfway across, going across the Mediterranean Sea, halfway across the empire looking for one guy, talk about your needle in a haystack, and that's what Barnabas did. He went looking for Paul and said, you know, God did something in this guy's life that will do well in this situation. He'll be able to reason with these Greeks. And it says in Acts 11, he found him, brought him to Antioch, and for a whole year, he's, been, already, been, he's already been soaking in this for however many years, upwards of 17, and now he gets another year. They met with the church and taught a great many people. 
and in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. Paul was grounded in the faith because of a man named Barnabas. Well, how did Barnabas come to be? Over in Acts chapter 4, it says that they were giving everything that they had so that everything was in common. No Christian went without. There was this dude named Joseph. Some people think he might have actually been the rich young ruler who, when Jesus said, sell everything, said, I can't do that. I think it might have been him who came and sold his land and brought the proceeds and put it at the feet of the apostles and said, here, use this to minister to the needs of the church. His life was such an encouragement, such an embodiment, personification of encouragement, that the apostles looked at him and said, we're going to change your name. We're going to change your name to Bar, son of Nabus. Encouragement. You're the very personification. How, about, how would you like to have your name changed to Barnabas? And I'll just have our names changed, right? A lot of us get called things we don't want to talk about on Sunday morning. Barnabas had, was such an encourager that when the apostles looked at him and said, man, we're changing, we're changing your identification. You are such a blessing. And he was discipled. Barnabas was discipled by the apostles, one of whom was Peter. These apostles, they're the very first batch, man. Peter's the first one out of the, he's the first one out of the chute. He was discipled himself by who? Jesus, man, that's the first crop right there. Do you realize that in this little bitty verse... We don't have four generations. We have seven generations of Christians. Because Jesus discipled Peter, who discipled Barnabas, who discipled Paul, who discipled Timothy and told him to entrust to faithful men so that they could entrust it to others also. In that one verse, you have seven generations of Christians. In the New Testament, seven generations of Christians. Friends, we, we see that because each generation was faithful to do what they had been called to do. It's so easy to get worried about what's going to happen next week and next month and next year and next generation and all that. God hadn't called us to worry about that. What happens with our great-great-grandchildren? That's between them and Jesus. Amen? It is our responsibility to be faithful today, to do what he has called us today, so that he can take it into the next generation. And, and here, here's the hard part. Let the next generation change it and tweak it and make it weird and tattoo this and pierce that. And all for the glory of Jesus. And somehow reach their generation. And friends... We can look at it and say, well, I want to be faithful in my generation, but I want to do something cool. You know, I want to walk on the water. I mean, that's the really cool stuff right there, right? Right? And I'm above, I'm above all of this mundane drudgery of cleaning the kitchen. You know, I don't want to clean the kitchen and clean up scraps and fill 12 baskets with scraps. That's all they were, leftovers. I wonder if some of the disciples looked at him and said, you know, when I signed on for this, didn't sign up to clean up scraps after people. Signed up for better than that. I wonder if Jesus looked at him and said, that's interesting because that's exactly what I did come for. Clean up scraps. Which is just exactly what we are. And friends, when you serve, you are impacting lives that will impact lives that will impact lives that will impact generations. And it's not ours to worry about tomorrow. It's not ours to worry about how this is going to affect others. It's ours to be faithful because all we want to hear is, you are a good and what? Faithful servant. When you serve the kingdom, when you serve in children's ministry, you're touching generations. How many of you were affected by, positively, (laughs) for Christ, by a Sunday school teacher? How many of us? They touched the future, didn't they? 
When you serve in children's ministry, you're touching the future. Corinne is starting a, a new thing called a, ch- a children's ministry team where she's asking people to come alongside and help her uh, lead this children's ministry and, and make sure it's honoring Christ. And when she comes and talks to you, I encourage you to pray seriously about say, how can I say yes to this? Because serving in that kind of capacity touches the future. When you lead a community group, when you attend a community group with purpose, with intentionality, when you come prepared to share what God's doing in your life, you're touching another generation. When you sit with your children a long time after the dinner is over and you just talk to them about Jesus, friends, you're impacting the future. And when you take somebody out for a cold drink and do the Hebrews 10, 24 on them, spur them on toward love and good deeds, that word's cattle prod, and sometimes we have to cattle prod them, amen? You know. You're affecting the next generation. And what that looks like, it's not ours to worry about. It's ours to be faithful in the meantime. And friends, you are sitting here because someone was faithful to the gospel in your life. Someone was faithful to just share Jesus with you. I have a buddy in Southern California. He got saved at a Greg Lowry meeting down in Southern California about 15, 20 years ago now. And when Greg Lowry had um, Franklin Graham come in and preach that meeting. Well, Franklin Graham was responsible for my friend Dave getting saved. Franklin got saved because of his daddy Billy. Billy got saved because of Mordecai Ham. Mordecai Ham was preaching the gospel because he worked with a guy named Wilbur Chapman. Wilbur Chapman preached the gospel because he worked with a guy named Billy Sunday. Billy Sunday got saved because he worked with a guy who had been ministered to by F.B. Meyer who got taught the language of the soul, is what he said, by D.L. Moody. Now, how many of you ever heard of D.L. Moody? How many of you ever heard of Dave O'Hanlon? Seven. <laughs> how many of you ever heard of D.L. Moody? Oh, you're a bunch of heard of them. You know why my buddy got saved? You know why my great-great-uncle got saved? It's because D.L. Moody got saved. Now here he was, just a young kid. He was 15 years old. His daddy died young. He couldn't write. He could not speak a proper English sentence. He had no education. 15 years old, went to town, went to work at his uncle's shoe store so he could make $100,000. You know, I sold women's shoes for six months. I didn't see 100000 on the horizon. So we're done with this. While he, went to, while he was in Boston, he went to church for the first time in his life, grown, raised in crushing poverty. And when he went to that church, he went to a Sunday school class. Now listen to this. He went to a Sunday school class, and the Sunday school teacher saw that little kid, that bumpkin, and thought, maybe, maybe I could tell that kid about Jesus. Went a few days later to the shoe store. He said he walked back and forth in front of the shoe store because he was scared, scared, scared to share the gospel. Now, isn't that encouraging for you? You ever been scared to share the gospel? Finally worked up his courage, walked in and told that 15-year-old kid about Jesus, and D.L. Moody got saved. Shook two continents for God. Couldn't, couldn't speak English, but established Bible colleges and institutes on both continents. Led 750,000 people to Christ. And my friend, Dave O'Hanlon, got saved because one day a Sunday school teacher went and talked to a 15-year-old kid and led him to the Lord. Now, you've heard of D.L. Moody. How many of you ever heard of Edward Kimball? That's the Sunday school teacher. 
And friends, when you are faithful to just do what God has called you to do, you have no clue what it's going to do in future generations. And Paul said, here's what I want you to do. I just want you to take what you've been given. Be faithful with it. You hand it to faithful men who are going to hand it to others who will teach it also. You just hand off what you've been given. And in doing that, we are impacting the future. You know, I was talking to Steve Pearson the other day. He's pastoring the church we planted down south. And he said, I want to plant pregnant. Well, that sounds weird. <laughs> you know, we have a lot more of those marriages happening today than we did 30, 40 years ago. When we... But what does he mean by that? I want to plant a church that's determined to plant a church that will plant a church. He's already thinking generations of church planting out. I want to be intentional, deliberate about getting the message out there. I'm going to be faithful in my generation so that that day I can hear him say, you know, well done. You were a good and faithful servant. First off, verses 1 and 2, generations of discipleship. Secondly, verses 3 through 7, analogies of faithfulness. Look there in verse 3. Share in suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. An athlete is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. In verse 6, it's the hard-working farmer who ought to have the first share of the crops. Paul uses three analogies of different professions, different pursuits, and characteristics on each of those three, which when you combine those three characteristics, this is what a Christian is. And the first one is, in verse 4, no soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits. Why? Because his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. A soldier realizes he has one goal, and that is to please his commanding officer. I'm not going to be distracted. I'm not going to be entangled in civilian affairs. I'm going to be wholly committed to the one to whom I have sworn allegiance. For a soldier, there's only one thing that matters, and that is the mission has to be accomplished, and it has to be accomplished because lives are at stake. And in order to accomplish this mission, i got to listen to what my commander says. i got to do what my commander says because he sees not only me, but he sees the whole group here. And so I'm going to do what Jesus tells me to do. So first off is the soldier. Secondly, in verse 5, an athlete is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. It's not the guy who crosses the finish line first who always wins but the guy who crosses the finish line according to the rules. You hear about the guy who ran the four-minute mile in three minutes? He knew a shortcut. I know. You get the point. That guy didn't win. Did you know in the 2009 Chicago Marathon, 252 people were disqualified because they cheated. <laughs> they cheated. They took a shortcut. And so now what they're doing with a lot of marathons is they're putting a little bitty chip in your shoelace. And if that chip doesn't pass through gates that have been established all along the marathon, if, you don't, if you're not proved, shown, proven to have passed through all the gates, you don't win. They used to do it in bibs, but they're not doing that as much now because you could just hand the bib off and have somebody else run it for you. But now they're making sure that you compete according to the rules. And friends, as Christians, we are to compete according to the rules. The ends do not justify the means. Oh, if we can build a big church, it doesn't matter how it happens. It does matter how it happens. And for our entire lives, how many churches have we seen that have grown real big, sprouted really big, it's like a grasshopper who can fly higher and land closer to where he landed than any other animal in the world. 
They grow real big, and then at the top of their fame, they find out, oh, they're not competing according to the rules. They're not living in righteousness. They're not dealing with their anger. They're not dealing with their fears. They're not dealing with their hidden passions. They're keeping things secret. And the whole thing comes crashing down. No, in order to get, a, get that winner's trophy, we have to compete rightly. And that doesn't just have to do with how we run a church, friends. That has to do with life. It has to do with your marriage. You've got to compete according to the rules. He gave us the rules. It, ha- it has to do with our business. We have to run a business like Christians. It doesn't matter if the deal is that great, if we have to lie or subterfuge or deceive in order to get it. No, nope, we've got to compete according to the rules. We need to remember that now that tax season's coming up. Tony Wolf said, Amen. <laughs> the athlete has to compete according to the rules, and for no reason other than because we're Christians. Third one is in verse 6. It is the hardworking farmer who ought to have the first share of the fruit, of the crops. It's a farmer who eats the crops. Before he takes any of them to the market. We were in Mississippi yesterday, flew back last night. And driving to the airport, there's this dude sitting on the side of the road in a lawn chair with a box full of strawberries that he's trying to sell. What else is he doing with them strawberries? He's eating them things. Because the farmer eats the first fruits. The farmer is the one who gets far more out of that Bible study than he will ever be able to convey. You eat the first fruits every time you study and prepare to give a Bible study. You learn more, you gain more than you'll ever be able to give to anyone who comes and listens to you. Friends, the one who consistently studies to impart will be the one who at the end of the day has the deepest penetration of the Word of God in his own life. I've already referenced Isaiah 55. That's what it's talking about. Let the rain, just let it soak in. Just let it soak. Let it sit and soak and soak. And if you'll do that, the promise is it will not return empty. It will accomplish what I've sent it to do. It will succeed in the thing for which I sent it. We were in Vegas a couple of weeks ago, and it rains like a day and a half in Vegas every year, and we got two days of rain in Vegas. What happens in Vegas when you get all of the year's rain all at once? They don't call it rain, do they? They call that a flash flood. That's, that's a problem there. You cannot microwave your spiritual growth. You cannot microwave, microwave your relationship with Jesus. It takes time to let that word soak in. And that's what those apostles did with Paul when they sent him up to Tarsus. You just, you just let this thing soak in there for a while. And friends, as you lead a community group, as you teach a Sunday school class, as you teach a Bible study at work or at the women's shelter, at the rescue mission, my mother taught Bible studies at her work and at the women's shelter for years, and now she can't do that anymore. Who's going to take her place? Who's going to fill in the ranks? Who's going to step in there? The person who leads the study, the person who prepares intentionally to talk to their kids, their grandkids about something that they need to hear about, and we're just going to sit around and talk about it. That person will gain far more than they can ever give to those who are listening. The farmer is the one who eats the first fruits. You benefit from the soaking in of the word. I was talking to a brother recently. He, he was raised in Minnesota. He was in the Minnesota State Senate, Senate years ago. And he was an old farm boy. And he said, <clears throat> he, said, he said, when you're plowing up new ground, what you can do is you wait till spring and you just disc it this way and then you disc it that way and you just keep going back and forth and back and forth until it's broken up. Or 
You can go out there in the fall of the year and you can turn that ground over. And then you just wait for the rain and the snow of the winter. And as that rain falls and seeps in and freezes, it breaks up the ground. And then it thaws and it seeps in a little bit more and freezes and it breaks up deeper ground. And thaws and soaks and freezes and thaws and soaks. And, and so then and you go out in the spring and you just turn it over. Here you go. You're ready to go. You don't have near as much work. Friends, that's what the Word of God does. That's what the Word of God does in our lives. As you just allow it to soak in, it reaches into places that you never anticipate. And you gain more from it than you will ever be able to convey. Paul looks at him and says, I want you to think over what I'm saying. For the Lord will give you understanding and everything. You meditate on these things. It's going to have far-reaching effect in your life. First off, we have generations of discipleship. Secondly, we have analogies of faithfulness. Third, we have the simplicity of the message. Look in verse 8. It says, remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David, as preached in my gospel, for which I am suffering, bound with chains as a criminal. But the word of God is not bound. Therefore, I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they also may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. I love that passage, just the simplicity of the message. Remember Jesus Christ. Friends, that's it. Remember Jesus Christ. I had a preacher friend back when I was in college. He said, my, my sermons are like a tube of baloney. You can cut them off anywhere and they're good all the way through. <laughs> that's funny, isn't it? You, just, you see, you have to, your starting point has to be that bologna is good in the first place, which we would have to take a vote on that. But anyway, not getting distracted. You cut, that, you cut that book off right there. That's good all the way through. You remember Jesus Christ. He's what matters. You remember Jesus Christ. And we can argue, Jared started a new Sunday school class this morning, the 20 things every Christian should know. We can sit back and argue, oh, I don't know the 20, I don't know that I can count the 20, I don't know that. Well, I don't know the five stages on the road, Roman road to salvation. I don't even know the three circles of salvation. And you can whine and carry on and use that as an excuse all you want, but you can't get past this one. Just remember Jesus Christ. Have you accepted Jesus as your Savior? What has He done for you? Just remember Jesus Christ. You can, you can share that. And that's the simplicity of it. Now, now look at what he adds here. He's risen from the dead. He's the offspring of David. He didn't even talk about the message. He talks about the life. He talks about what he did. And then he makes it clear, this is what I've been preaching, as preached in my gospel. And there are consequences. Look in verse 9. There are consequences to preaching the gospel. For which I am suffering, bound with chains as a criminal. I'm in jail for this. I'm about to have my head lobbed off for preaching the gospel. And I'm in chains, but I want you to know one more thing. The Word of God is not bound. No matter how bound we are, the Word of God penetrates. It's free. It penetrates in ways and places that we... And never imagine. You know, it's interesting. Uh, we've talked about this a little bit in the past. Paul went to Athens over in Acts chapter 17. Great sermon there. I love that passage. He reasons with them. He argues with them at the Areopagus. And, and all of the reasoning, when he left Athens, he left no church behind. The next place that he went was Corinth. And when he got down to Corinth, he wrote them later and he said, here's what I determined. 
When I came to you, I did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. It's almost as if he said, you know, I've tried the lofty speech and wisdom route in Athens. didn't do much good. I came to you with the demonstration of the power of God through the preaching of his word. And you know what he left in Corinth? A church. <laughs> he came with a clear and simple message in 1 Corinthians 1, 23. We preach Christ crucified. That's the message. We preach Christ crucified. It's a stumbling block to the Jews and it's nonsense to the Greeks. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. We preach Christ crucified. And friends, you can do that. Now, learn the three circles. Learn the five steps on the road to, Roman road to salvation. Learn the 20 things that every Christian needs to know. Start with, remember Jesus Christ. Can't get around that one. And the simplicity of that message, Jesus Christ died on the cross for a reason. It's because of our sin. Our sin had built a wall between us and God. And that sin had to be paid for. And Jesus said, I'll pay for that sin. I will take that wall down. He died for a reason. He was raised from the dead for a reason. It was to give us life. It was to give us access into a life with God. And now that he has paid the price and he offers us salvation, he looks at every one of us and there's a command that he gives to us. In 1 John 3, the command is, this is His commandment, that you believe on the name of His Son, Jesus Christ, and that you love one another, which is what He has already commanded us. 1 John 3, 23. That's His command, that you believe in the name of His Son, Jesus Christ. Have you accepted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior? Are you living in obedience to the command of God concerning your life? It's real simple. Remember Jesus Christ. You know what's interesting? Over in Acts chapter 10, when it's talking about the ministry of Jesus, it says God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. Here's what he did. He went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. Jesus just went around doing good. He just went around doing what he could do. Now, if, if you have been empowered the same way that Jesus has, was, to heal all those who are oppressed by the devil, then Here's your permission to get to it. Just go out and get to it. But you, if you have been empowered differently than Jesus, here's your permission also, get to it. Just go out and do what God's called you to do. Go out and do what He's gifted you to do. Just go out and do it. And in doing it, remember Jesus Christ. Just tell folks what Jesus has done for you. It's not about rules. It's about life. It's about giving him your life and receiving his life. It's not about doing better. Because friends, we are fundamentally broken. We are like that woman with the issue of blood who's gone to doctors and spent all of her fortune, done everything, and we've not grown better, we've grown worse. That's how it is when we try and fix ourselves and do better. The problem is not doing more good. The problem is sin exists. There's a problem there. You don't go to heaven because you're good. You don't go to hell because you're bad. The problem is there's a wall between us and God, and that wall is sin. And that wall had to be taken care of. And Jesus said, I will take care of that wall. I will remove that wall. And the Bible says that he became sin and dealt with 
the punishment that was due us. He received it so that now the pathway to us and between us and God is clear through the person of Jesus Christ and says, I invite you to have a relationship with the Father. Come to me and I will introduce you to him. The question now is not even the wall. The question is, Jesus Christ, have you accepted Jesus as your personal Lord and Savior? And if not, why not? Friends, it is as simple and profound as this, recognizing I looked at God in the face and I said, no, I want nothing to do with him. I did that. I have sinned against a holy God and I am sorry. I admit it. I apologize. And I recognize, I believe that what Jesus did on the cross, he did for me. And I just want to say thank you. I receive your forgiveness and I give you my life. I'll do what you tell me to do. And friends, it is as simple and deep as that. First off, we have generations of discipleship. Secondly, we have analogies of faithfulness. Thirdly, we have the simplicity of the message. And then finally, in verses 11 through 13, we have the song he cannot contain. Look there in verse 11. The saying is trustworthy for... If we have died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he also will deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. You know, not infrequently in his writings, Paul just can't stand himself anymore, and he just burst out with some song or poetry or declarative praise, and this is one of those times. He just he sits down at the piano at the end of the sermon and says, I just can't stand it anymore. Not today. <laughs> frequently, he says, this, tr- this saying is trustworthy in 1 Timothy 1. It deserves full acceptance. Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. You need to know that one. You need to get that one down. 1 Timothy 3, the saying is trustworthy. Anyone who aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. You're trying to pastor a church, you need to know this. When you have people who want to serve and lead, that's a good thing. You need to know that. 1 Timothy 4, godliness is of value in every way. That saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. Titus 3, being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. That saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things. There are times when Paul just says, I I, want to make sure you're picking up on what I'm laying down here. This is important. You might not get this right now. I'm telling you something. I want you to listen to this. Whether you understand it or not is not important. I want you to hear and just put it in your back pocket. You know, there's so many times one of my mentors, Dr. Barnett, is such a wonderful man. He would, say, he would say things knowing I had absolutely no clue what he was talking about. But it's like, you'll need this one day. Just put that in your pocket. The day will come when you take it out. You'll get it. That's what Paul's doing here. And he accentuates this. He, he points to this next expression of praise. By saying, this is a trustworthy saying. And he has four couplets here. First two are positive, the last two are negative. Look at them in verse 11. The first couplet says, if, you have, if we have died with him, we will also live with him. If you've died with him, if, if you have, according to Galatians 2.20, been crucified with Christ, here's the promise. Nevertheless, I live. Here's the promise in John 11. I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, what? Yet (laughs) shall he live. If we died with him, we will also live with him. That's the promise of God. The second one, 
Verse 12, if we endure, we will also reign with him. And friends, there is an element of endurance in the Christian faith we don't talk about too much these days. It's so simple, so easy in, in our culture. And friends, the Bible makes it clear there is an element of endurance that is required on the part of the, on the, part of the Christian in order to see glorification. Romans eight seventeen, provided that we suffer with him in order, if you suffer in order that we also may be glorified with him. Revelation 3.21, there's a promise for those who, who wear Nike tennis shoes. How many of you wear Nike tennis shoes? How many of you have ever heard of a Nike tennis shoe? Thank you, thank you. Nike is the Greek word for overcomer, it's for conqueror. And, and when you see that, when you see overcomer or conqueror in, in the Revelation, that's what it is. So the next time you're strapping up those Nikes, you just say, I'm walking in victory today. Amen? I'm an overcomer. Jesus looks at us in Revelation 3, and there's a promise for those who conquer, for those who overcome. Here's what I'll do. I will grant him to sit with me on my throne. Friends, there is an element of overcoming that is required in order to reign with him for all eternity. But there's a third one here, and this is a negative. If we deny him, he also will deny us. Jesus made it abundantly clear in John 10. If you confess me before men, I'll confess you before the Father who's in heaven. You get there. You're standing in front of the throne and I'm going to look at you and say, that one right there? I know that one. I know that one. He can come in. But he also said in John 10, but if you forsake me, if you deny me before men, I will deny you before my Father who's in heaven. And we're going to get to that same throne. And Jesus is going to point at those also and say, you depart from me because I never, what, knew you. If we deny him, he will deny us. And the fourth one, verse 13, if we are faithless, he remains faithful for he cannot deny himself. A lot of ways of looking at that verse. A lot of folks look at it differently. It's a fascinating verse. Jesus said in John 6, 37, whoever comes to me, I will never cast them out. Friend, if Jesus is inside of you, he's got you. There are others who look at that and say, we can disparage. We can, we can deny. We can say that God doesn't exist. And that I can jump through all kinds of mental hoops to prove that God doesn't exist. It does not diminish the reality of his existence one iota. The Christian scientists can say they don't believe in pain all the way up until that baseball hits them in the face, right? The ball was getting bigger and bigger, and then it hit me. <laughs> anyway, Travis will laugh at that on the way home. Just because you say it doesn't exist doesn't mean that it disappears. The existentialist can look in the mirror and say, self, I don't believe that I exist. What are they going to poof away like a Bugs Bunny cartoon? Just because you disparage God, just because you choose not to believe in God, that does not mean that He ceases to be. And your estimation or your lack of estimation of God does not contribute to or diminish who He is one iota. He is faithful. 
And friends, for those of us who have accepted Jesus as our Savior, even in those times when we are not faithful, even in those times when we have the occasional stupidity, He's faithful to us and will not deny Himself. And in that, we can rest. He loves me. Even in the face of my frustration when that airline loses my bags last night, He still loves me. So we just take care of it. We just say, well, Shinora, have done that. And I'm really sorry. God, please forgive me. We get things right with the people around us. And we just get it right with God and we keep going. Because even when we're not faithful, he remains faithful. Because he cannot deny himself. Generations of discipleship, analogies of faithfulness, simplicity of the message, a song he just cannot contain. Have you accepted Jesus as your Savior? If you haven't, could I encourage you before you leave today, talk with us. Let's share with you what God's Word, the Bible, has to say about how you can become a Christian. How you can experience forgiveness of sin and devote your life to something that is eternal and worth giving your life to. Jesus as Lord. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for your invitation into a relationship with you. God, how can we ever understand adequately, express adequate gratitude? God, thank you. God, for the generations of discipleship that have brought us to today, for the generations of faithfulness, we, we, it's so easy to be egotistical and think we're the only ones who have ever been faithful. We're the first ones to truly serve when God, in reality... There's always been a remnant. There's always been faithful ones. God, thank you. And thank you that 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 line was extended to me, offering me a relationship with you. Father, we want to be faithful soldiers to one captain, athletes who abide by the rules, farmers who gain more than they can ever give. Father, help us to remember the simplicity of the message. There are no excuses. Remember Jesus Christ. And Father, in those times when we just cannot hold the song in, God, we want to sing. We want to express. We want to give you the glory that's due your name. We confess you are all that matters, God, in Jesus' name.